2: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. Thank you. Thank you very much to those of you who have written and called with feedback and requests for what to do in upcoming shows. Some of you have asked that we talk about the job market for young people. Some have asked that we discuss the role of bank lending in monetary policy. And some of you have also asked that we do more on sweeping global macroeconomic trends. We promise we are going to do our best to incorporate all of those themes into future episodes. We really appreciate your getting in touch. And of course, we'd love for more of you to get in touch. And I'll tell you how you can do that at the end of today's show. But for now, let's get right to it. On today's show, three topics. First up, the Financial Times itself has been bought by Nikkei, the Japanese media company. We're going to be talking to Jillian Tet, the FT's U.S. managing editor, and Ben McClanahan, the FT's U.S. banking editor. Jillian and Ben both have spent long stretches of their careers in Japan as reporters, as correspondents for the FT. And after that, we're going to keep Jillian here for a discussion of her upcoming book, The Silo Effect, which is coming out in September. This is the first exclusive interview in which she's discussed it. And then finally, my colleague on Alphaville, Matthew C. Klein was just in Greece for three weeks while all the traumatic episodes that you've been reading about in the last month were happening. We're going to talk about what he saw. So stick around. Lots of fun stuff today. First topic on the program, Nikkei has bought the Financial Times to discuss this. I'm joined by Ben McClanahan and Jillian Tett. I'm sure that both of you are really excited that your debuts on Alpha Chat are about this super awkward topic, right?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, how else could you start?
2: Exactly. Okay, I I should say first for our listeners that we're not about to give away any kind of privileged information, mainly because we don't have any about this transaction. We're mainly going to try to discuss this, pretending to the extent that we can that we were reporters or journalists at a rival organization, and we're going to talk about what this transaction means for the journalistic landscape and for the media landscape in Japan and in the UK and here in the US. That being said, we should probably acknowledge that we're also human beings. So yes, there is a certain amount of curiosity, maybe a little bit of anxiety. It's natural, understandable in the newsroom itself about what happens next because it affects us. But this is a fascinating acquisition in many respects. Ben, I'm going to start with you. Nikkei, the company, and what we know about it, They sell 3 million newspapers in Japan, which is a staggering amount of sales for a print newspaper. They only have about 400 and something thousand online subscribers. How do they sell so many newspapers?
0: The Nikkei over the years has has built up an astonishingly dominant position uh, in Japan, uh, primarily, I think, through controlling to some extent the uh, the, the circulation methods. But they're also number one for a reason. uh, And that's because the, the, the content is unlike anything you can get in any other paper. How's
2: it the, different?
0: They're so interwoven with the fabric of Japan Inc. Uh, they have hundreds of reporters who, whose job is to beat the competition, literally. They have a sort of internal system, uh, whereby there's a sort of medal system, bronze, silver, and gold. Uh, and the more you can accumulate, uh, and you pick them up through through scoops, essentially through introducing new information to the market. And the more you can accumulate, the better that is for your career. So the, the entire machine is set up uh, to generate stories that other people don't have.
2: Okay, so when you say Japan Inc., you mean... Japanese corporations, right? In other words, they have, they have a dedicated team of reporters for each Japanese corporate. And yeah, no, they the, get s- these, some of this- the
0: bigger ones, like Toyota, has five or six people assigned to it. And that there are stories, to some extent, that executives at those companies, if they don't like the reporter that's been assigned to them, uh, that they can sometimes uh, encourage the Nikkei to, to replace them.
2: So that's, so that's what we know about their circulation. What do we know about the company itself in terms of what it does? Okay, It has the newspaper, but it has all kinds of other things too, right?
0: Yeah, it has the Daily Newspaper, which is the primary product. It also has a, a collection of weekly magazines. Uh, and there's been lots of criticism uh, from, from some of our rivals, and in fact some people at the FT too, that uh, the Nikkei is a little bit timid in its coverage. But uh, if you want ferocious coverage, then the weekly magazines are the, are, the, are the place to find it. It also has the index business, a bit like the, uh, the FT used to, and all sorts of other sundry uh, businesses. But which the
2: Weekend are. Magazine, also run by Nikkei, the company,
0: it's just different from the newspaper. That's right. It okay. also has about 8% of Monocle. I mean,
3: Jillian, it's worth what do you... Point, it's worth pointing out that this is an enormous group with many, many different outlets, many different publications, and frankly, on a size and scale that people in the American or European market are simply not familiar with. It also has television programs, it has a rating agency, but its sheer breadth of weekly publications and magazines is quite staggering.
2: It has a rating agency, like a bond rating agency?
3: It has a rating agency, yes.
2: Okay. But for financial securities... Yes. Okay. I actually did not know that. It also, by the way, has an English language publication that I think is fairly new, the Nikkei Asian Review. I don't know if that suggests anything about its ambitions for this acquisition, but what do you guys think? Where does the Financial Times fit into what Nikkei wants to do?
3: Well, here's what we do, and here's what we don't know. First of all, we don't know many of the details about how this will play out. Kitasan Nakadasan, the president and CEO, wrote a very interesting letter to the FT staff last week, which was very well received, indicating that firstly, and perhaps most importantly, they respect our editorial independence, which is absolutely critical for us, and they respect our culture, and very much applaud what we've been doing. So what we know so far is that, one, the Nikkei has money which is something of a rare commodity in the media world these days. Yes, exactly. Two, it has ambition, and it's been very clear about its desire to not merely go global, but go digital. And three, it has a lot of respect for us. And that's a fantastic starting point to be working together in the future.
2: But to be a little bit more scrutinizing here, we know, for instance, and Ben, I'm going to turn to you on this one, that when the Olympus scandal broke, the accounting scandal at the company Olympus, the Japanese company, that it was broken by the FT. And the criticism has been that Nikkei, the newspaper, didn't pursue it for a little while, that it waited for a time, right?
0: Yeah, the, uh, the story was, was broken by uh, my former colleague, John Sabel, now at the New York Times. Uh, but I think the, the main point to bear in mind here was that uh, Michael Woodford, when he was booted out of Olympus and felt sort of in danger for his life for a while, uh, he, he went to the FT. He didn't go to the Nikkei. Uh, I think that tells you a, a lot about the Nikkei's reputation for... Uh, for independence.
2: Okay. And I guess it seems like the tension then now, while we wait to find out what their plans for the FT are, is whether or not the FT is going to export its method of doing things, its aggressiveness, back to the Nikkei and back to its properties, or if it's going to go in the other direction, right? I mean, that's what a lot of people are worried about, are people who watch the media, people who want to know what their plans are.
3: Well, we at the FT take enormous pride in the fact that we have independent judgment we write without fear and without favor, and that is still absolutely... I've heard that somewhere before. (laughs) Exactly. That's what our masthead. And Lionel Barber, the editor, has made it very clear that that's what we stand for, that's what we will continue to stand for, and that's what we take pride in.
2: Okay. I want to talk about Japanese media for a little while. Ben, you mentioned that the way Nikkei does things is very much a part of the way Japan Inc. operates. I Mm -hmm. think that's the phrase you used. I was struck by something that you wrote back when you were a correspondent in Japan about how... These companies always – they always give these scoops to the newspaper about – and they include a lot of market-moving
0: information, yeah. right? How does that work? Well, your use of the word give there is, is something I have to take issue with. Leak? Uh, it, it's a mysterious process <laughs> okay. by which uh, companies' results are routinely appear in the pages of the Nikkei about two to three weeks before the actual results are disseminated through the official channel, which is the Tokyo Stock Exchange, and I think there's lots of back and forth. But I think the first thing to know it's a reflection of the, the Nikkei's coverage of all these companies. The fact that these guys' lives, there because they all own shares in Nikkei at the same time, their livelihoods depend on um, being first and, and accurate. But the the response to, to my story went when I did point out that lots of investors were unhappy about this because it does uh, privilege readers of the Nikkei. It privileges readers uh, of, of Japanese. And uh, it does make the TSE look as though it doesn't care about the sort of equal access to price-sensitive information. And the reaction was disappointing, to be honest. I had some traction with the TSE. They, in fact, they changed their rules for about two or three months, it seems. There were a couple of warnings issued to companies that did appear to be engaging in this process. But since then, uh, since November, in fact, there's not been a single warning issued to any companies.
2: While the practice has continued,
0: The I practice think. continues, yeah. Investors have got used to it. Jillian, doesn't this strike you
2: as quite... I was going to use the word weird, but at the very least we could say unique in terms of developed markets and how they operate. That this kind of information that at least you know here and in Europe and in the UK, we think, well, there's this principle involved that if it's price sensitive market moving information that all investors should get access to it simultaneously or to the extent possible they should all get it at the same time.
3: I used to run the bureau in Tokyo for the Financial Times and in fact the first book I wrote was actually about – Japan and Japanese business culture. And as I made it very clear then, Japan has a distinctive vision of finance and money and capitalism that until now has been different from the way that capitalism viewed in America. No surprise there. I mean, Germany's view of vision of capitalism is different from America's too. What is clear at the moment is that certainly Japan is talking the talk of corporate reform Abinomics is very much about presenting a new face to the world and trying to internationalise the economy to some degree. And what's also clear is that the Nikkei realises that the FT and the Nikkei have different cultures um, and different ways of doing their business. So I go back to my original point, which is that you know, we at the FT stand for reporting without fear and without favour. And that remains very much our mantra. And certainly Lala Barber has indicated that he understands that the Nikkei supports that.
2: Spoken like a good trooper.
3: (laughs) Spoken Um, like someone who's dealing with the information we have so far.
2: Sure, yeah, of course. Yeah, Gillian, you actually mentioned your first book a little earlier. That also included the story of an East-West acquisition and the fallout, right?
3: My first book was called Saving the Sun, and it was about a bank called long-term credit bank, Chogin in Japanese, which was bought, collapsed in very dramatic style in 1998. It really epitomized the rise of Japan in the post-war years, and then the sad collapse of Japanese finance. And it was bought by a group of American private equity players and investors, and a very storied group of big American financiers, you know, people like Paul Volcker involved, John Reed of Citigroup, um, Vernon Jordan. It, w- it was like a who's who of the American elite. And I basically use the story of this extraordinary collapse and acquisition to really try and illustrate not just the rise and fall of Japan, but also the difference in attitudes between Japanese and American business and the difference in attitudes towards finance. And I told it through the eyes of three people. The last president of the Japanese bank, Onogi-san, the man who came in and bought the Japanese bank, filled with ideals of American-style capitalism, Tim Collins, and Chris Flowers, his counterpart. And then Yashiro-san, a Japanese man who was very Americanized to try to bring the two worlds together. So it's really a book about culture clash.
2: Okay. And do you think the potential for culture clash has lessened in the time since you wrote that book?
3: I think the potential for culture clash is always there whenever you have different cultures trying to do business together. That's just a reality. And you either, you know, fling up your hands in horror and get very dramatic about the challenges that poses, or you get practical and say, right, let's try and find ways to learn from each other and to try and understand each other. And I'm trained as an anthropologist, Anthropologists essentially try and get into other people's skin to try to see the world through their eyes and walk their walk. That's what I did in Japan back in the 1990s with my book. And I very much think that's going to be the new tempo and the flavor of what we're doing going forward.
2: Ben, I have a a tough question for you next. Mm -hmm. Because it sounds like from the way that both you and Jillian have discussed this transaction, like the natural thing for Nikkei to do would be to sort of keep Nikkei's existing operations fairly distinct from what the FT is doing going forward. So they've got this bigger global imprint now that extends well beyond their already huge domestic reach, right? But that it's not entirely clear where the overlap would be. So I guess my, my question to you is, what do you think is the likelihood of a hands-on versus a hands-off ownership of the Financial Times by its new owners?
0: I think the probability is probably skewed towards hands-off at this point, at least for the first couple of years. Well, um, the Nikkei looks at the FT, it's, you know, runs the rule o- over its new asset, looks at what we do well, what we don't do well. Ideally, yeah, let's, let's get a bit more investment. But I, I don't think there'll be the, the kind of micromanaging that uh, some Japanese companies have, uh, have tried in the past and have failed.
3: The key point to make is that right now we're waiting with respect and some anticipation um, to see what's going to happen. But what's clear is that there's actually a very fat history of Japanese Western deals out there that everybody can learn from and study, and work out what works and what doesn't. And I very much hope that as the leaders of the Nikkei and the FT try to work out how to make this work, they learn from history and find the way to walk, you know, a path that's most effective for both groups. Um, and above all else, be open to listening to each other, and respect that there are big cultural differences. But it's quite possible to try and, you know, walk yourself into someone else's shoes and understand what's both good and bad about your own culture.
2: So there's something specific that I want to talk about here that also makes me a little bit uncomfortable, not just about the way that we're discussing this transaction, but about the way the transaction has been discussed pretty much everywhere. Okay, So we keep talking about it as if a quintessential Japanese company is buying the Financial Times, and that's fine, and there should be a conversation around how there might be culture shock because a Japanese company is buying a UK company. Just like if Bloomberg or another American company had been buying the FT, we would have some space for a discussion around the culture shock there. And that's fine. I understand it. But I think we need to talk a little bit more about the specific ways in which Nikkei is or is not a quintessential Japanese company itself. Because I actually don't know. Uh, Ben, what do you think? Do you think Nikkei is broadly representative of how Japanese companies also do business, based on your own experience reporting there.
0: From what I know of Japanese companies, and from what I know of the UK, uh, they do appear to, uh, to share lots of uh, characteristics in, in, in common. Uh, there, there is a sort of employee-owned uh, culture, or all, all the journalists uh, are shareholders. There is a sort of lifetime employment. There's not much um, flux, like um, in New York, for example. As people leave the journal, they join Bloomberg, they join Voices. There's not so much in in, in the um, in Tokyo, where if you join the Nikkei as a graduate, you'll probably be there until retirement. Uh, I think some of the institutional mechanisms that 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 develops are, you know, common to lots of Japanese companies. It is. And I
3: would just add one thing, which is, you know, from my time in Japan, I have many friends in Japan. Um, I love Japan, absolutely love Japan. And I think we need to think about the fact that actually for the Nikkei employees, this is actually quite nerve-wracking too, because many of them are looking at us and looking at the financials and saying, well... Clearly, we've bought this incredibly, um, you know, interesting trophy asset. But is that going to mean that we're going to have cutbacks inside Nikkei? Is this going to change the way that we work? Are we going to be squeezed at the, you know, are we going to be the ones who have to take the sacrifice to pay for this acquisition? So I think we need to recognize that for both sides right now, there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty. And let's hope that some fast forward gets, you know, indicated fairly soon.
2: Sure. Anxiety is on both sides, especially because, by and large, it seems like Pearson got what's considered to be a very good price for the FT. To the extent that that was a higher price than the pool of suitors thought they would be paying, that's less money for investment, but it's also less money for the people who already work there. Mm-hmm. right? So there should be some
0: sensitivity to yeah, that uh, as well. Until last week, they had a billion dollars of cash on the balance sheet. Uh, now they don't.
3: <laughs> so I guess <laughs> right. our message is to you know, the Nikkei staff – Actually, you know, hey, we're we're in this together in terms of wondering what the future's gonna hold.
2: Sure. And that's a pretty good place to end. Jillian Tet, Ben McClanahan, thanks for being here, guys. And next up on the show, Jillian has stuck around to discuss her upcoming book. Jillian, I believe this is the first of like three hundred interviews you're gonna have about this book, right?
3: Well, the book doesn't come out until the end of August in the U.K. and beginning of September in the U.S., so we're getting a real preview of a preview here. Yes.
2: By the end of this, hopefully anybody that listens to this uh, lesson won't actually need to buy the book because they'll already know anything. (laughs) No, please do. Rush off and pre-order
3: on Amazon. (laughs) They'll still buy it
2: anyways out of appreciation for what's in it. Okay. The title is The Silo Effect. I'm going to start this session with a confession, okay, because when I heard what the title was, I was a little bit nervous. I was worried that you were trying to coin some kind of new like business jargony phrase, like leveraging synergies or something. That's not actually what you mean. The silo is something very specific that you talk about in the book. Why don't you just start by defining that? What is a silo and why does it matter?
3: Well, the literal meaning of a silo is that it's a tower used to store corn in in the Midwest. It comes from the Greek word syros, meaning corn pit. But in these days, the military has borrowed it to refer to the missile bunkers, And management consultants and, you know, ordinary people use it to describe what happens when you have any big group or institution that starts to operate in a very fragmented way. People get um, wedded to acting only in the interests of their little department, their little team. They end up completely dominated with tunnel vision and they become very blinkered. They end up living in a social bubble. And so basically they can't join up the dots. They lose their sense of perspective. In a nutshell, what I say is that the problem with silos is that they make bright people do some very, very stupid things.
2: Okay, we're going to discuss a bunch of examples that you've written about in the book and you've given in the book, um, and also some of the reasons why that happens. But I want to first start by saying that in the book, you don't say that silos are always and everywhere a bad thing, that in some places they're necessary to be an organizing force.
3: Absolutely. I'm not anti-silo. Silos are actually inevitable. And the reason is very simple. I'm trained as an anthropologist and anthropologists know that one of the universals of the human condition is that we classify the world about us. We like to organize our mind, our societies, our space into boxes because otherwise we just get overwhelmed. We live in a world with so much data and information, and where, frankly, the world's becoming more complex now with globalization and technological advances, that we have to find ways of sorting the world into boxes and to classify it simply to survive. And it's out of that process of classification that silos arise.
2: Okay, so we spent uh, the first segment talking about Nikkei buying the Financial Times. You actually include another Japanese company in this book, Sony. And how it was this very successful company until essentially it started, well, siloing off all its employees. So tell us why that example is so powerful.
3: Well, Sony's a fascinating example because actually it doesn't just illustrate a pattern seen in many Japanese companies, but a pattern found in many hierarchical bureaucracies and many large institutions anywhere in the world. And what typically happens in a tech company, say, is that it starts off small and freewheeling and very fluid. And then it starts to grow bigger and bigger and bigger. And one or two departments or teams might enjoy a massive success early on. And so they form a silo. They become a department which is dedicated to promoting that idea. And if they're successful, they're very hard to challenge or dislodge. In the case of Sony, say, the Walkman was fantastically successful. And so the consumer electronics division became very, very powerful. Similarly, PlayStation was very successful. And the real problem is that as divisions become embedded and entrenched, the world around them tends to change. And so with Sony, what happened was that software and hardware and media converged very rapidly, really at the end of the 20th century and during this century, because the internet took off. But unfortunately, inside Sony, the different departments remained so rigid that it was very hard for Sony to actually chase that convergence story.
2: Yeah, because they were ill-equipped to, I guess, work together and take the best parts of all the other silos and combine them, you draw contrast with Apple, which did things very differently.
3: One way to try and break down silos is to have an incredibly powerful, dominant founding figure or CEO at the top of the company who simply bashes heads together and breaks down departmental barriers. And Steve Jobs at Apple was that kind of figure who literally said, we're only going to focus on six products at any one time, We're not going to tolerate any sort of individual departmental bickering. I'm going to tell everyone to work together. And they did. For instance, he
2: forced forced the artists and the designers to work with the engineers, that kind of thing. Steve
3: Jobs forced the artists and designers to work together. He refused to pay people purely on the basis of what their own little team was earning in terms of profits because he said that would create tribalism. And so his sheer force of personality managed to avoid silos forming um, an apple in the past. Um, Sony had that in the early years because the founders of Sony, Molotov, was very powerful. Um, Unfortunately, though, as time went on, it became bureaucratic. You see a similar pattern developed, though, at Microsoft or Xerox, where you've also had silos become embedded, and that's hurt their performance quite badly.
2: So I guess one kind of controversial interpretation that you might take away from what you just said is that a small-D democratic approach to management doesn't quite work as well as an autocratic approach ruthless, dictator-like figure at the top who can knock these places down. Uh, is that universally true, or is this uh, you know context-specific?
3: Well, one of the stories I also tell in my book, which provides a very interesting counterpoint to Sony, is the story of Facebook. Because there you have a group of hyper-aware, hyper-self-aware founders who were trained as computer geeks for the most part, or working as computer geeks, but are terribly fascinated by how social, social beings, how human beings interact and they have set out very, very deliberately and very self-consciously to avoid the silo peril inside Facebook as it grows by introducing a whole range of management techniques and practices which try to stop silos from forming. So they insist that everyone who joins Facebook goes on a common onboarding session. They actually call it boot camp using military language to try and create social bonds between people that will link different departments together. Um, They shuffle people around between departments very, very regularly. They have all-night hackathons where they take people from different departments and force them to actually spend all night working together and, again, creating social bonds. They use architecture to get people colliding. I mean, the overwhelming principle at Facebook is that you have to have dedicated project teams to get stuff done. You need silos in the sense of specialists to actually be able to move fast and be innovative. But the real issue is that you have to stop those project teams or those silos from hardening into tribal groups that all want to kill each other. You have to find a way to both be specialist but also integrated and open to exchange of ideas.
2: So I guess the thing you're trying to avoid here is the the classic notion of a turf war, that if you have your own little turf to protect, you're going to do everything you can. It doesn't really matter if it's good for the company or not because you've got a team of people that look up to you, that you're trying to defend, that you're trying to protect. So that you'll do things that, in a narrow sense, will be individually beneficial, um, but that'll be to the detriment of the company. Yeah?
3: Absolutely. I mean, the single most important thing you can do to guard against silos is to actually not use a management handbook, but to actually just use your brain. And to start off by recognizing that we as human beings are hardwired to classify the world, but those classification systems harden if we're not careful, And when they harden and become too rigid, it almost always causes us to be stupid. You know, we become blind to big risks that are developing, and you can see that in the financial world. But you also become very blind to opportunity. So in a sense, my book's quite positive because it says that actually, if you look at companies where people do think very hard about their classification systems and try and play around with alternatives and try and reimagine the world periodically – or even just do something simple like look at another company, another business sector, another culture, and then look back at yourself to see how strange you actually are. You can actually avoid many of the perils that are associated with silos. And the really important point is that one person's loss is another person's gain. So if you are able to silo bust in a world full of silos, you can actually get a huge competitive advantage compared to rivals.
2: Okay, so speaking of classification systems, in a month or two when this book comes out and I go to Barnes and Noble to see where where the book is shelved, do you think it'll be under management, under, I don't know, organizational theory or under
3: anthropology? <laughs> I'm hoping, and certainly this is what we think will happen, is it will be basically with Malcolm Gladwell, you know, in the era of social commentary, social psychology and business psychology.
2: I ask that because This book, certainly more than your previous book, does include that heavy element of social science, of anthropology in this case. And in one of the chapters, you talk about the importance of having a kind of outsider point of view and how that's really almost impossible if you've been at the same place for a very long time. So talk about how that fits into the broader point, the broader themes that you write about.
3: I'm a huge believer in the value of trying to get out of your skin periodically to look back at yourself. I mean, what anthropologists do is essentially go and study the other. In the 19th century, the Victorians, they went off to Africa or the Amazon jungle and looked at tribes and felt very exotic. More recently, anthropologists go all over the world. But the value of studying the other is really to then flip the lens and look back at yourself and see patterns and things which you might not have otherwise noticed. And so whether you travel geographically, whether you travel mentally, whether you're willing to take risks in your career by jumping into a whole new type of career. One of the stories I tell in my book is about a former tech entrepreneur who worked at Open Table, who went off to join the Chicago police and ended up with some very interesting insights about how to improve policing as a result. Having the ability to roam a bit and collide with the unexpected and make yourself open to serendipity and a fresh point of view is absolutely invaluable in the modern world.
2: And so one thing that this book does have in common with your prior book is your discussion of the financial crisis. You talk about what happened at UBS, the bank, and you also talk about how economists themselves tend to silo themselves off or did before the crisis and how that was a leading contributor to what ended up happening. Let's start with UBS, though. What happened there?
3: Well, the story of UBS is the story of many large banks in the um, financial crisis, which is that it was a gigantic organization where, frankly, the right hand did not know what the left hand was doing most of the time and the terrible tragedy and irony of UBS is that it was a Swiss bank which thought it was ultra-boring and safe, incredibly safe. All the regulators praised its risk management efforts. And during the course of 2006 and 7, it spent a huge amount of time trying to control the risks that it could see, which were things like leveraged finance and hedge fund risk. And it completely missed the single biggest risk that caused tens of billions of dollars of loss which was the problems of CDOs and subprime mortgages. And the reason it missed it was because it had these separate little departments silos which were scurrying around, misclassifying subprime loan risk. And nobody was able to join up the dots at the top of UBS and see just how dangerous the pattern was becoming.
2: And economists, what did they screw up?
3: Oh, economists, well, I tell <laughs> the story of the Fed and the Bank of England. And I happen to believe that one of the great reasons why the financial crisis erupted, why the credit bubble became so large, was because policymakers were either looking at the world through macroeconomic lens or through monetary policy, or they were looking at the world through the weeds of the financial system. And very rarely did they ever bring the two together. And so during the period of 2005, 6, 7, many policymakers thought that the global economy was actually performing very well, because everything seemed calm, inflation was low they failed to see the tremendous dangers that were developing in the credit markets because that was handled by an entirely different group of people.
2: But you also write about how economists essentially stopped thinking about money, which is kind of a funny-sounding thing to say. But actually, the way money works, and specifically the way that collateral functions as money and in the development of the shadow banking system, was something that so many of them missed as a potential vulnerability within the financial sector that – It's kind of incredible in hindsight to see why they missed it or to see that they missed it, but it's sort of understandable to realize that they just missed this complete paradigm shift in the way that we should have been looking at the world. So talk a little bit about that.
3: Well, one of the most interesting tales that I tell in the book is about the Bank of England. And if you look at how the Bank of England's thinking about markets changed over the decades— There was a time when it really looked very much looked at markets as part of the wider political economy, and there was great interest in how money functioned as a discrete item in its own right. But then came the rise of the free market um, thinking, ideologies. Then came this concept of efficient market hypothesis, CAPM, all that kind of thing. And money began to be seen merely as a transmission mechanism. It became like electricity. And people stopped looking at money as something in its own right, and purely looked at it for its signaling device about what was happening in the real economy. And of course, they failed to spot that actually the nature of money can change in bubbles and in crises. And of course, during the 1990s and the early noughties, it changed quite significantly.
2: Yeah. Okay. One last question then, because I want to get back to this issue of conflict between the necessity of breaking down barriers that separate silos, and the fact that in a very real sense, you need silos just to get anything done. I mean, if my entire job at the FT, for instance, were to be constantly talking to everybody else, I would never actually do any work of my own. And I think that's not just something that applies to individuals. It applies to teams. It probably in some sense applies to very large parts of certainly bigger organizations. How are – How are companies and people supposed to manage that?
3: Well, one way you can do this is to copy an approach taken by, of all places, a hospital out in Cleveland. And Cleveland Clinic used to be organized in the way that's very classic for medicine in the Western world, which is basically according to how doctors are trained. You divide the world up into the classification system created by the training of doctors, of producers in the past, And one of the surgeons there, in fact, the man who runs it now, Toby Cosgrove, said, well, what happens if we turn this whole thing upside down and try and look at the world not through the eyes of doctors, producers, but consumers, i.e. patients? How do they classify the world? How do they divide the world up into buckets? And he realized that, of course, when you go to a hospital, if you're a consumer, you don't say, I'd like to see a cardiothoracic surgeon or, you know, a hematologist. You say, you know, my chest hurts or I have a headache or I feel unwell. So human beings actually divide the world up in terms of medicine into body parts or ailments. And so they tried reorganizing the hospital to reflect what consumers want, the end goal of medicine, not what producers are trained to do. And that's a principle which can be applied in many, many business fields. You know, Syngenta, the agribusiness company, tried a few years ago shifting from dividing its operations up into the way that scientists separated out their products, i.e fungicides, pesticides, herbicides, and seeds, and saying, actually, we're going to organize ourselves according to how farmers want to buy their products. You know, they now have a wheat division and a corn division. You can use that principle in many business fields. And the most important thing of all, though, is to recognize that we all classify the world all the time without ever thinking about it. We're all locked into these rigid cognitive maps these rigid ways of actually creating mental filing cabinets and organising people that we inherit from our surroundings almost without thinking about them, almost always without thinking about them. But we don't have to be rigid creatures of our own environment. We can actually master our science if we want. And the most important thing is, are we going to actually think about how we classify the world and change it if it doesn't suit us? Are we going to try and master our classification systems or are they just going to master us?
2: All right. And I think we're going to leave it there, especially since I just came up with an idea of my own, which is that we should have had Simon and Schuster, the book's publisher, sponsor this segment. And I <laughs> wish I'd thought of that earlier. Jillian uh, Tett, U.S. Managing Editor of the Financial Times. The book is called The Silo Effect. It comes out when?
3: It comes out on the 1st of September in the U.S. and at the end of August in the U.K.
2: Thank you very much. And last on the show, Matthew C. Klein, my colleague on FT Alphaville. Matt, your first appearance on Alpha Chat. First of all, welcome back. Thank okay, you. from Greece. Okay, we're obviously in our New York studios, but you were in Greece when all the turmoil was happening, right? I was. Uh, what's striking is that I didn't notice. I <laughs> yeah, mean- <laughs> right. That was, that was what you wrote about on Alphaville when you got back. That's
1: right. I remember it was funny before leaving. Uh, so for context, I planned this trip, I guess, probably back in the spring and bought all the tickets thinking, oh, you know, whatever, Greece will be fine. You know, yes, it's a country that's gone through a lot, but fundamentally, it's a place that is welcoming to travelers. You start getting closer to it. We have the capital controls. You start reading about they might be ejected from the euro while I'm there. There's the referendum being announced. I'm getting all these messages from my parents saying, what do you, you know, is it safe?
2: And specific to you, uh, ATM withdrawals right. are limited.
1: So they, the limits were less for tourists because you're not converting a Greek bank account in, into right. cash. But, just, but because there was so little cash in the country in general, there were yep. limits. I personally didn't actually enc- encounter this. So there were some ATMs where they said, oh, you know, we can't give you 20s and only give you 50s, or we can't give you 50s and only give you 20s. But otherwise, I didn't notice that being an issue. And businesses didn't seem like they – I mean there were a lot of businesses you could tell were sort of always cash only, which is not unique to that part of the world. But it's not as if places that normally would have taken cards – We're changing their mind.
2: But I guess what what I remember that was interesting to me about it and from talking to you about it before the trip was that there was so much confusion around this. Like it was hard to find good information on whether or not your – specifically your ATM withdrawals would be limited from your bank. It was kind of hard to to discern exactly how you would be affected as a tourist.
1: Right. I remember there being a lot of articles that my wife and I are passing back and forth on whether you know we'd have to worry – And at the end of the day, you know, we did bring some in advance, and I sort of resent the fact that we had to pay some (laughs) absorbent commission to uh, our local SIFI to get that money in advance. But on the whole, like, I guess for peace of mind it was fine, but we didn't really need to do that. And then we were there. We we were fine getting cash when we needed it, and all all throughout the country. I mean, not just in Athens or some of the major touristy islands, but we went someplace in the Peloponnese or sort of off the beaten path, and it wasn't an issue there either. And you you
2: said something interesting in your post that if you hadn't been reading so much about it, if you weren't in the news business yourself, and if you hadn't been paying attention to the news, you might not have even noticed that anything unusual was going on.
1: That's right. I, I think this is a very striking thing. I, it's something you know. I, I had a little bit of a sense of because uh, last year on vacation, I went to Spain and Portugal, and I had a sort of similar experience where, oh, like everything looks like it's fine. But Greece is even more extreme, I and mean, this is a country where incomes have fallen by a quarter, where employment has fallen by a quarter, where the establishment political parties have been completely destroyed as a consequence of this. You'd think – I would have thought naively that if you walk around, you could see some kind of sort of social disorder, at least like more homeless people or something on the margin. But that wasn't the case. I mean, I run into more homeless people in New York than I do in Athens, and I, I don't think that tells you much about you know the state of the macroeconomy there. The trains are cleaner in Athens than they are in New York. I mean, these are these are things that you that's know, you don't... not a very high hurdle to clear. <laughs> fair, fair, but but still, public I mean, services were working. Right. The only thing in Greece that would make me think there was something wrong. Was that there's a tons of graffiti all over Athens and another big city. We went to Eiraklio in Crete, but the irony is, it turns out that it was always like that. I remember reading about this guy <laughs> was kind of curious, and you can find articles from like 2005, 2006, and like American travel forms. Like, oh man, I'm surprised how much graffiti there is in Athens. And clearly, that's not a function of social discord or, or poverty. That's just the way it is. So, should we all have
2: renewed faith in macroeconomic indicators and in journalism? Then, given that. You were there as a tourist and didn't actually notice anything. The reason we know there's such tremendous and very real pain and suffering going on in Greece right now, for Greeks, of course, is that we read about it and we see it in the numbers and we see it in the anecdotal stories that are passed on by journalists, by others who go there and who are
1: searching for exactly that. What's your takeaway from that trip? Yeah, I guess I would say we sort of have to be... More, not more relying on numbers, but, but recognize that when a statistical agency does the work that it does to kind of get a sense of an economy of millions of people, they're probably going to get a much better picture than any individual person can, even if they're ex- making a great effort to travel and meet with people and, and, and see what's going on in the country, because your experience is always going to be a tiny fraction of, of the whole, and the people aren't necessarily going to show you what's actually happening in their own lives. So I think in general, we as journalists and, and the public at large, or well served by putting anecdotes, you know, heavily discounting them whenever whenever someone says like, oh well, you know, this is, you know, the economy's great, but I know this guy who lost his job, or conversely, man, you know, they tell me that the economy the, uh, the economy's terrible, I just got a pay raise, so clearly everything's fine. I mean this this sort of reasoning you hear it a lot, at least certainly in this country and probably probably sure. elsewhere. And I think it's useful to have this project like, look, you can go to a country that objectively is having an experience comparable to the US Great Depression and, the, and the, not notice it and the
2: the bars are humming and everything right. looks fine and you know the restaurants right. are full or whatever actually if they're only full with other tourists right, right I don't if you think stay it in just, one part of town then right.
1: forget it i don't think it was just other tourists but right i mean that's certainly a, a thing that would you know distort the the picture but it's it's just striking how you can not be misled but you can you can see only sort of one side of the story and very easily kind of miss the the more important picture okay Matt, this was a lot more interesting than
2: talking about the FOMC statement that came out today. Thanks for being on Alpha Chat. Thanks, Evan. And in today's follow-up segment, Amelia Mahasuk is here to yell at me or otherwise give us critical feedback on last week's episode, as she does every week. Amelia, good to see you again. Hey, of so last week what do you think?
4: I only had an issue with one segment which okay. was the Gawker segment. Yes. Because it happened in the week which of course the FT was taken over by Nikkei. That's right. And we discussed a lot or you discussed a lot about editorial independence and the divide between commercial and editorial That's right. and and in fact I think in previous podcasts you've also talked about Commercial as it relates to podcast sponsorships yes. in the podcast about podcasts. Yes. Excellent podcast about podcasts.
2: That is, in fact, one of the more contentious aspects of what's going on in this podcast renaissance.
4: So as part of that, I thought we should have had some self-reference to the FT and our position on editorial independence.
2: To the FT's editorial policy. Yeah. Okay.
4: And a fact which you also touched on in the podcast on podcast, but didn't really go into, which is that you would be unlikely to be endorsing cereal, yes, some other, yeah, some exactly. cereal, cereal brand yeah. or shoes or <laughs> whatever it is you're into, right? In exchange it, for money. In right. exchange for money to sponsor this exactly. lovely experience of us sitting around chatting.
2: So it's, a little bit more comprehensiveness there. In other words. If we're going to talk about editorial independence, if we're going to refer to journalism, we should also talk about Ourselves. our own organization's stance. I think that's totally fair.
4: So I think Edge did make the point that each organization had to figure out its own rules, yes. but there was not really a reference to our own rules. and right. uh, Our own and-
2: rules on editorial independence is that we are for it.
4: <laughs> Absolutely. And one of the tests for our new owners will be how they deal with that because I think our old owners have – Never had a formal policy set down because we trusted them for the last however many decades. Okay, so a better job of, the of a
2: better job of explicitly stating what it is that we do here when we're referencing other journalistic places. I think so. I Think
4: okay. that would be the go. And the other thing I I left wanting to know more about this segment of FIFA, are the personalities of these guys who have taken all of this money and
2: the guys who got busted. Yeah, the guys, the guys who guys got did. busted. Right. They're
4: turning up in court now. We can see them. You know, we have experience of them. Be nice to know something more about them, what their presence is like, what, what smooth talking, what connections they have that right. have put them in this situation.
2: This they're seedy underbellies, so to speak.
4: Well they don't look seedy.
2: They a look bit, a little bit seedy.
4: <laughs> <laughs> uh, depends Except, who you hang out
2: with. Accepting right? or offering bribes in exchange for broadcast rights. That's a little seedy.
4: That's the allegation. Yeah. But they, look, they yes. look well-dressed. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, they don't look seedy. Anyhow, okay. yeah.
2: Okay. I will probably stick to personality rather than sartorial criticisms or offerings, but that's actually a great point. Yeah. Amelia Mahasak, always a pleasure. Thank you, kind And that's all we've got time for today. Thanks so much for listening. And as always, I want to give you our contact information so you can give us feedback. You can call us at 917 551 Five zero one two. That's a US number, nine one seven five five one five zero one two. Or email us at alpha at ft.com or you can tweet me directly at Cardiff Garcia. This podcast was edited and produced by Amy Keane. Once again, this podcast is her world and we're just talking in it. Thanks, Amy, and we'll see everybody back here next week.